while he was the primary planner of the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, it, I don't think that he was in favor of it. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. Dr. David Joe is Associate Professor of History at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He holds advanced degrees from Georgetown University and the University of Cambridge. David was an intelligence officer beginning with appointment in 2001 as a Presidential Management Fellow in the FBI National Security Division. In 2003, he transferred to CIA as a counterterrorism analyst in the DCI's Counterterrorist Center before earning field tradecraft certification. He retains his commission as a commander in the Navy Reserve. In 2015, he deployed as the Director for Human Intelligence and Counterintelligence for the Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa. Other Navy assignments include service as a Division Officer in the Office of Naval Intelligence and as a Department Head in the Joint Analysis Center, RAF Molesworth, UK. David, thanks so much for taking time to discuss Pearl Harbor with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell us about the state of naval intelligence prior to World War II. Uh, I think the best way to, to describe it you know, is probably disorganized, uh, probably not, um, you know, as, as you'd think, um, given that uh, Pearl Harbor was an intelligence failure itself, uh, there were um, strokes of brilliance. And uh, as you, Claude, would be the first one to remind me, the Office of Naval Intelligence had actually existed for many decades uh, prior, to, uh, prior to, to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, but of course, the C in CIA stands for Central, and the key problem here uh, with Pearl Harbor was that the, uh, uh, the 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 bickering and the inter-service rivalry and the uh, the uncoordinated efforts between the Army and the Navy, uh, the State Department, the War Department, uh, all of this led to surprise, uh, strategic surprise uh, and tactical surprise, unfortunately, uh, on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. Who's Herbert Yardley? Herbert Yardley is a is a is a complicated figure. Uh, he's a uh, he's a codebreaker uh, uh, by by way of background, uh, hailing from a small town of Worthington, Indiana, where he uh, he cut his teeth playing poker um, as as a young man, and uh, he found that uh, he had a knack for patterns, pattern recognition, uh, code breaking generally. And so the, uh, the U.S. government can, uh, can trace its, its earliest efforts at communications intelligence and code breaking to Herbert Yardley, who was the head of what was then called the Black Chamber, this sort of joint uh, Department of State uh, uh, and, and War Department enterprise uh, to, uh, to, as, as uh, Henry Stimson would later complain, to read, read other gentlemen's mail. And uh, Herbert Yardley... Uh, has a has a, a mixed uh, um, track record. Let's say I would I would encourage anyone to read his uh, uh, his autobiography, uh, as well as other good good biographies about him. Uh, but for our sake, he played a, a a pivotal role in the Washington Naval Conference in 1921, uh, whose purpose was to limit uh, Japanese warship production, uh, at, uh, and uh, I mean tonnage there. Uh, in relation to other great powers, uh, namely the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, after uh, the First World War, 
uh, it seemed that war was ruinous and expensive and uh, settled very little for mankind generally and was not to be recommended. And so the, uh, the great powers got together in Washington and said, hey, can we please limit our fleets? Uh, we need to rebuild from the First World War. We have a treaty that's supposed to be sort of Wilsonian in some of its idealism. And we don't really need uh, millions and millions of tons of, uh, of warships. And so uh, the Japanese, uh, once they were pushing for a ratio uh, of what we might call 553. That is, uh, sorry, they were pushing for um, uh, for uh, what 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 we would call um, five five three, what, what what they would call ten to seven, and what I mean by that is that uh, for every uh, for every five uh, tons, let's just say, of warships um, that the U.S. would produce, uh, and every five that the U.K. would produce, uh, Japan would be permitted to build either three as we wanted, uh, or three and a half as they wanted. And so what Herbert Yardley and his Black Chamber did, where they really proved their, their worth and their mettle for the United States, um, is that they, uh, Herbert Yardley intercepted a, a message between Tokyo and the Japanese uh, negotiating party in Washington. And in the message, Tokyo tells uh, the, the negotiating party, uh, hey, look, we'll settle for 553, five, uh, otherwise expressed as 10 to 6, uh, if, um, uh, you know, if, if the Americans and the Brits just aren't going to go for it because we don't want to fight the Americans. We don't want to fight the Brits. Uh, we're not ready for that kind of thing. And so uh, uh, Yardley has the, uh, the distinct pleasure of relating this to the American uh, Secretary of State. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the Americans simply uh, hold out, bide their time, uh, and ultimately get the agreement of 553 as they wanted. And, of course, this is going to have... Um, repercussions down the line when we get to the Pacific theater in World War II, because the Japanese don't have uh, the, the, the tonnage that they would have wanted or would have liked to have had going back as early as 1921. Now, obviously, much of the Pacific fleet is at Pearl Harbor. And when you're looking at photos on this anniversary, you know, everything really seems to distill down to that. But there's so much more going on in the years leading up to Pearl Harbor. Now, one of those is the impact of geography and governments in Southeast Asia, specifically with regard to Nazi-occupied Europe. And I was wondering if you could sort of explain why something going on in Europe has so much of an um, impact on Japanese plans in, in Southeast Asia. Right. That's, it's, it's a great question uh, because the, the theaters, we often think of them as, as you know, almost entirely separate wars where the, uh, uh, the, the, the European theater is the Band of Brothers Theater and the Pacific Theater is, of course, the Pacific Theater. Um, and actually, they're, they're linked in lots of ways. Um, in 1940, as you'll remember, um, the, uh, the, the Nazi Germany had essentially either uh, conquered or co-opted uh, you know, almost the entirety of, uh, of the, the, the continent, uh, aside for Britain, who was still holding out in 1940. And the, the European uh, um, countries were so busy trying to defend themselves and doing a poor job of it against the Nazi Wehrmacht uh, that there was just no, no resources to defend their colonies uh, in, um, in Asia. The, the British uh, did, a, did a, a pretty bad job of, um, of protecting Malaya, Singapore, uh, and the French ultimately um, were, uh, were, 
were told by the German government, this is now the Vichy French, uh, hey, you guys are going to have to cede your uh, Indo-Chinese possessions uh, to our, Germany's, ally, Japan. And so the, the Japanese then create um, really uh, uh, bo both by, uh, by what, was, what uh, was, was known as the centrifugal offensive, that is to say multiple uh, coordinated attacks through the Netherlands, um, East Indies, uh, Borneo, uh, the Philippines, um, and all the way down uh, to, to Sumatra. And, uh, and this, um, this essentially leaves the, the Japanese uh, fully in charge of, uh, of, of almost all of, uh, of, of Asia, including large swaths of China, many times the size of the Japanese home islands, uh, all of Korea, and, uh, and basically anything north of, uh, of Australia. Um, and so that's really how these, uh, the, the, the Japanese, in, in that sense, were almost opportunistic, um, in, in a manner of speaking. What about strategic resources for the Japanese? Uh, well, the Japanese have a, a lovely set of islands, um, but they're, it's, you know, it's pretty remote from some of the things that they think that they need. And some of these are sort of, um, uh, sort of you know, have a little bit of historical irony in there. Uh, the Japanese wanted to expand. Um, and they, by the way, they had wanted to expand and maybe you know, we, we can go back uh, you know, since the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. The Japanese had considered... Uh, annexing the Philippines as early as 1908. Uh, so, you know, we need to, to kind of place Japanese uh, expansionism uh, in a much longer context uh, than, than simply uh, the, the Second World War. Just to clarify, when we're talking about War Plan Orange and the, really the decades-long planning for what would eventually uh, be the basis for, for our operations in the Pacific War, these weren't based on speculation in, you know, at the turn of the century. These were based on, was it based on actual intelligence or knowledge of, of Japanese intentions throughout Southeast Asia? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, you know, the, the Japanese, I think, were, you know, were, were mostly biding their time, uh, but it also gets to, to the nature of the regime. Um, and, you know, there are still lingering questions, you know, about how much uh, the uh, the emperor was you know sort of driving the train and how much he was just sort of hanging on for dear life in the caboose uh, and and you know leading um, you know le leaving uh, major strategic decisions uh, to his his generals and his his uh, imperial staff um, and we can probably circle back to to 1904 1905 in a minute uh, but to answer your direct question about supply and logistics problems. Uh, you know, the Japanese uh, have many wonderful uh, things, but uh, what, what they don't uh, have is, uh, is many natural resources. And so they, uh, they decided that they were going to head down into what they uh, euphemistically called the, quote, Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, uh, unquote. Uh, and that's basically uh, the, the, the swath of, uh, of geography there in the Pacific that we'd already discussed. Uh, which has uh, oil, which has metal ores, which has rubber, uh, all of these things the Japanese needed uh, to feed their, uh, their industry and their, 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 uh, the war state, let's say. Uh, the problem, however, is that getting from uh, you know, places down, let's say Malaya um, or, uh, you know, or, uh, or, or Borneo all the way back up to Japan 
is a really long journey. And remember, for every mile you go away from Japan, you have to tack on another mile coming back. And that, that ends up to a pretty big gas bill. Um, and so really that's where uh, the Americans uh, decided to, to, to cut them off um, was, uh, was on the, the oil embargo. You know, the, we, you and I have both been through classes in our careers on intelligence failures in history. And one of the things that we tend to overlook perhaps in, in commemorating Pearl Harbor is mistaken British intelligence because of their role in, in East Asia. Yeah, that's that's a, it's an excellent point. Um, you know, we we tend to to look at uh, you know us as making uh, a lot of the the, the mistakes, um, and the the, the British uh, certainly had a had a sense uh, that the Japanese would be no big threat. Uh, this was particularly acute uh, in the case of Singapore, um, euphemistically called the Gibraltar of the East. And it had these, you know, Singapore had these uh, enormous coastal defense guns that would, uh, uh, you know, almost, you know, sort of a, a the, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a 19, you know, 40s version of, you know, anti anti uh, access area denial type situation, except for the fact that they only pointed out to sea. Why would they only need to point out to sea? Because Malaya. Uh, also in British hands would be so impossible to take that uh, that taking all of Malaya and then flanking uh, Singapore, that is to say, coming in from the north, um, would be unthinkable. And so it was uh, it was lightly guarded, to say the least. Um, when uh, when the Japanese land on Malaya, uh, the uh, it's it's it, uh, it's later called um, uh, uh, characterized as a relentless withdrawal uh, because the British um, were uh, were withdrawing um, in, in ways. I mean, not not un, uh, not unlike uh, the American experience in the Philippines um, in uh, in the face of the, the Japanese onslaught. But but to your question specifically of British assessments, um, the uh, one one uh, British uh, British officer. Uh, told the the army commander uh, in uh, in Malaya um, after the, uh, the the Japanese army had landed, quote, well, I guess you'd have to shove the little men off, unquote, uh, clear, you know, clearly underestimating uh, the uh, the organization and the drive and the experience and the, the combat prowess of the Japanese Imperial Army. Do you think the Japanese could have accomplished what they wanted to in the Far East without attacking Pearl Harbor? That's a great, I mean, that's a, a great counterfactual. Um, probably. I think it depends, you know, what, what really did they want? Um, you know, I mean, are, you know, the, the Japanese had designs, had plans for, uh, for Australia. Well, you know, the, uh, the Americans weren't going to stand for that. Um, and they also had some plans for the Aleutian Island chains, a part of uh, part of Alaska. You know, the, the, you know, the Americans weren't going to stand for that. So I think it really depends on the size of the ambition we're talking about. Are we talking about you know the the the, the Japanese defensive line uh, sort of around the southern uh, resources area, the SRA, or are we talking about something you know that that basically goes out to Midway? Uh, you know, which uh, the Americans uh, would not have would not have countenanced. Um, I don't. What do you think? There are so many times in history you wonder what if, 
you know, what if bin Laden, for example, had not attacked the World Trade Center? Could he have succeeded in simply continuing to attack, uh, you know, embassies, even ships, and not receive the blowback uh, that he did in, in Afghanistan? You know, that's a clear sign of strategic overreach, just as the Japanese did at Pearl Harbor. Could they have simply gone from smaller nation to smaller nation? What was our real commitment? It's one thing to for FDR to go before Congress on December, uh, excuse me, December 8th and ask for an act of war because there are pictures coming back on what is U.S.-controlled territory. It's another thing if the attack doesn't happen and he has to justify war because of attacks in Malaya, even though, you know, it's under control, nominal control of the British. I mean, if you look at Gallup polls in uh, uh, just a couple of months before Pearl Harbor, and, and this is a year after Britain is is well under attack by the Germans. Gallup polls show overwhelmingly 80 to 90 percent of Americans are opposed to a war in Europe. So would we be willing to commit ourselves to attacking friends, uh, excuse me, attacking uh, people who had attacked our traditional friends and partners? Yeah. I don't know. Well, this, yeah. This, I, I, I think your, your assessment is right. I think that, uh, you know, given the fact that the, you know, sooner or later, uh, Germany was going to be defeated, um, and because of that, the Axis powers would fall. Um, you know, it also, I think, has a lot to do with uh, with what the Soviet Union would do. Um, you know, the, the Soviets felt that you know that the, the Brits and the Americans were sort of letting the Soviets uh, do all the hard work grinding down the German war machine. Um, you know, would the Soviets uh, come into uh, um, uh, come into uh, 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 any better luck, let's say, um, against uh, against Japan? Hard to know. But I, I think you know we could pivot off this point uh, to talk about sort of American so-called isolationism. Uh, you know, the sort of original America First um, uh, movement. Um, a powerful movement, uh, um, you know, and, and one that was not a fringe movement, uh, you know, with, with Charles Lindbergh and, and several others uh, at, at the helm. Um, but I think it's, it's worth noting um, that, that the, you know, how does FDR, who ultimately uh, was, was prepared to have America enter the war, uh, how does FDR get America into the war without a direct attack on U.S. interests? Um, or the U.S. fleet, and so of course this uh, this gives rise to the great uh, conspiracy history about Pearl Harbor, which I guess on a on a, a podcast uh, dedicated to commemorating Pearl Harbor, it's probably worth at least a minute of myth busting. Uh, but the idea was that FDR knew that uh, that the attack was coming and opted uh, to to do nothing to to not warn. Uh, the, uh, uh, the the military powers uh, uh, in in Pearl Harbor um, and also opted to somehow uh, keep it secret but also make sure that the four American aircraft carriers were not there to be uh, to be damaged because if they were damaged well then you know then say goodbye to the Battle of Coral Sea say goodbye uh, maybe even to the Battle of Midway um, and so, uh, and so, you know, the, the the theory goes that in order for uh, Roosevelt to turn public opinion, um, that he sort of let it happen. 
there is no historical evidence to support this at all. And, uh, and I, I think it's fair to say uh, all serious historians uh, have, have debunked uh, this one. But it, it, it's a perennial favorite. And, uh, and to be honest, it's not really that different, actually, than uh, the other great conspiracy with Winston Churchill uh, trying to protect uh, Coventry, it, right? The the yeah. Enigma secret, and so letting uh, letting the Germans basically uh, attack uh, Coventry. Uh, again, uh, no evidence to to support that. Uh, but I think that the conspiracy does sort of point to the intersection of political will or you know popular mobilization to do things uh, for uh, you know for, for for political reasons. Earlier, you mentioned the Washington Naval Conference, and there's a uh, mid-grade officer who's attending that conference named Yamamoto. Can you tell us about the role of Yamamoto prior to Pearl Harbor? Sure. Uh, Yamamoto was a guy who uh, knew his enemy. Uh, Yamamoto, uh, Fleet Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, was the commander-in-chief of the Imperial Japanese Navy's combined fleet. Uh, Very impressive uh, resume. Uh, actually studied at Harvard uh, from 1919 to 1921 and was actually naval attache in the United States, not once but twice. Um, so this is a guy who really understood uh, his, uh, he really understood his adversary uh, in ways that I think are, uh, are remarkable. Um, you know, and, and while he was the primary planner of the the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, I don't think that he was in favor of it. Um, in fact, he he reported to his seniors uh, that uh, that this this had better be a quick war uh, because after that there would be problems. Um, and and he he says specifically, uh, quote, uh, in the first six to twelve months of a war with the United States and Great Britain, I will run wild and win victory upon victory. But then, if the war continues after that, I have no expectation of success. Um, again, you know, understanding that the war is not just warriors' resolve, um, is not just um, you know the uh, the you know how hard you strike your opponent uh, in the initial circumstance, but rather a total war uh, is a war of attrition, is a war of of a population, is a war of a society and is a war of resources. And Yamamoto uh, understands how big the United States is, how populous, how, how rich, uh, not only in, in sheer you know, financial terms, but also rich in resources. Um, you know, and, there's a, uh, and so the Americans and the British were underestimating the Japanese, but the Japanese were underestimating or at least misestimating the Americans. And, uh, you know, to be honest, sometimes uh, when I think about Yamamoto and how he counseled against doing something um, because the, uh, the enemy was, was, was misunderstood, it sort of reminds me of, uh, of General Shinseki uh, warning that we shouldn't go into Iraq in 2003 with a very light footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and of course, it, you know, he was dismissed for having, you know, contrarian and uh, defeatist sorts of views. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a quote that's often, um, that's often uh, attributed to Yamamoto, where he says, uh, I fear all we've done, this is after Pearl Harbor, and uh, the, the deed is done. Um, I fear all that we've done 
uh, is, is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. And although there's, there's nowhere to trace that footnote down, um, I'm not, you know, I, I think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's now become more legend than historical fact. I think he probably could have said it, and he certainly must have thought it. Um, you know, so I guess we call these things now, uh, you know, truthy, if not, you know, specifically true. <laughs> I have to wonder if Admiral William Crow, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if he knew about Yamamoto, Yamamoto's quote, I mean, he must have. He was a Naval Academy graduate, uh, not too soon. Not sorry, not too uh, long after. Uh, Pearl Harbor, and he famously brought his his counterpart, his Soviet counterpart, here to the United States. This was a story that was recounted at Admiral Crow's funeral at the Naval Academy Chapel, or one of the factors that turned the tide of the Cold War, because he took his counterpart everywhere, and nothing was pre-planned. He told his counterpart, "You may see any part of our country, just to show that." Uh, the, there's no Potemkin village here. We're not painting the the walls of Office of Naval Intelligence before a member of Congress walks, you know, through them. It, this is no kidding. You may see anything you want. And and it's said that afterward, his counterpart was so impressed that he tried to convey to his 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 colleagues in the Soviet Union what exactly they were facing in terms of agriculture and in terms of firepower of the United States. David, let's turn to to the intelligence failures at Pearl Harbor. For, for this commemoration, we're not going to discuss the, the keys of the battle itself, or the attack, I should say, but rather on the intelligence failures. That is, you know, your expertise and your professional career and your academic career. So could you enlighten us on, on what really happened? Sure. Well, you know, I think it's a, it's a close-run thing. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it looks, I mean, it was a disaster. Um, but it was it was a closer run thing uh, than uh, than I, I think many people, uh, you know, the, the idea, um, you know, at least when I was growing up. Uh, and by the way, the terms have changed. Uh, when I was young, uh, it was a Japanese sneak attack on Pearl uh -huh. Harbor. Uh, True. And now yeah. it's a surprise attack. I don't know if you've noticed, you know, some of the, the public history there has has changed a little bit. Um, but uh, the, the Japanese, by the way, it, it must be said uh, that this is how they kicked off the Russo-Japanese War, actually, with a, with a, a surprise attack on, uh, on Port Arthur. Uh, so, you know, uh, it worked for them once uh, against a superpower in 1904. Uh, and, you know, uh, I guess they, they, they thought it would work again. Um, America, it's not that America was asleep at the switch, though. Um, it's... It, it, in that sense, it is a little bit like 9-11. Um, we, th we, we had some very um, uh, convincing uh, assessments at the strategic level that Japan was not going um, to take uh, our, um, you know, our embargoes and our helping uh, the, uh, you know, the allies uh, lying down. And so it, it, was, it was thought that there would be a strike somewhere. It's just that that far out into Pearl Harbor uh, or into the Pacific uh, at Pearl Harbor, by the way, Hawaii was not a state yet, um, was uh, was un was unforeseen. And in that sense, um, you know, it, it again sort of has echoes of 9-11 in terms of that that failure of imagination. Um, but look, there were uh, there were Americans 
um, you know, there was a op 20 G, you know, was the, uh, the, the code breaking outfit, uh, who was, uh, who was reading certain Japanese cables. Um, and even the, uh, uh the, uh, um, there were, there were pickets, uh, but they were not enough to pick up the Japanese fleet for the Japanese fleet for their part. Um, they did quite well, actually. They didn't give the Americans much to much to work with, uh, you know, sailing and radio silence uh, and maintaining um, strict discipline. The, the commanders, we should probably just take a second to name them. Uh, Admiral Husband Kimmel was the commander of the Pacific Fleet, uh, and Lieutenant General Walter Short was uh, was in charge of the uh, the Army forces in the Pacific, and they were. Uh, you know, they were held responsible ultimately. Um, and, but they were denied uh, the code breaking intelligence uh, that we, we, we refer to as magic. And so they were given some war warnings. Uh, and, that's the, and that's the sort of the tragedy, you know, is that strategic, at the strategic level, it looked like something was going to happen. Um, but at the tactical level, um, it, was, it was an intelligence failure. Uh, I mean, there were inner service rivalries where the you know, the army code breaking was doing, uh, was briefing the president on was it even days and the Navy was on odd days or vice mm-hmm. versa. I mean, you know, the, you know, and this is why I, I again called it disorganized. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no central coordinating effort uh, that's, that's bringing the puzzle pieces together, right? So-called connecting the dots. And, you know, and I'm not trying to, to make Pearl Harbor, sort of the 9/11 of 1941, but there are an awful lot of parallels that are worth considering. Um, and I think one one sort of repercussion that that is worth considering from the intelligence point of view um, is about the 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 intersection between or the relationship between the intelligence producer and the people that can act on the intelligence. Uh, just for you know for one one example. We can talk about Admiral Kimmel. Admiral Kimmel was accused of parking his planes wingtip to wingtip. Well, that makes it easy, uh, easier anyway. As Clausewitz said, you know, everything in, in war is uh, is easy, except everything is is also impossible. Um, but uh, you know, easier from a uh, from a, a a bombing point of view. Uh, well, why? Uh, because the the planes were so close together. Well, why were they so close together? Well, because uh, Kimmel wanted them all to be in a defensible perimeter. Well, why? Well, because he, his primary uh, understanding of the threat was sabotage. And so you want to have everything uh, as close together so you can keep an eye on it better. Uh, and so, you know, what, what would these commanders, that is to say, Admiral Kimmel and General Short, what would they have done differently uh, if they had closer access uh, to the intelligence? Um, and this is not, by the way, just a just a, a uniformed problem. The Secretary of the Navy himself, uh, Frank Knox, uh, after he was uh, was told about um, the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, he uh, he said this can't be true. It must mean the Philippines. Uh, you know why? Mm-hmm. Because policymakers interpret intelligence through their own lenses of their own preconceived notions, their own understanding of the threat. And what they think is possible. Now that's yeah. now that's a, a, a great observation. I remember in the years after 9/11, I was working for uh, Senator Collins, and she was the sponsor of the Intelligence Reform Act of, of uh, 2004, which dealt with so, so many of the 9/11 issues. 
And as as we all were were drafting that, you know, one of the considerations was how will uh, policymakers read intelligence in the future? How could they best read it so that it's it's far more accurate? How are the shortcomings on intelligence corrected after the attack on Pearl Harbor? Well, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, it, it was an absolute wake-up call for the United States. Um, but we can't rush right to 1947 and the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency. Again, that that C in central there is, is really important um, because the idea is bringing all the pieces together. Um, but clearly, we had to do we had to do something. We had to find a way not only to increase collection, but also to to sharpen analysis. Uh, you know, as uh, as Roberta Volstetter said in her book on Pearl Harbor, you know, how do you how do you separate the signal and the noise? And so we needed more collection. We also needed better uh, analysis uh, to to uh, to understand what it was that we were collecting. Um, and I think it's it's important to to go to CIA as the, the, the never again, you know, would we be surprised like we were at Pearl Harbor and to, to up our game in terms of intelligence and warning. Um, but even at, at, the, at the time of Pearl Harbor, um, we're not looking for a peacetime civilian intelligence apparatus. And so uh, we go to, uh, to the, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, under initially Colonel and then ultimately Major General uh, William J. Donovan. Um, and so the idea here is to have the Office of Strategic Services as, as, a, as, a, as a collection mechanism and as, a, uh, as an analytical mechanism, but it's, it's part of the War Department. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the enterprise. Uh, it, is not a civilian, uh, it is not a civilian undertaking, although civilians did serve in it. Um, and so we transition. It's, it's no sure thing that, that just because we, we upped our game in um, uh, that we, we, just because we upped our game uh, after Pearl Harbor, that didn't mean that there was going to be a peacetime intelligence service. Uh, that was still many years down down the the uh, the pike. And in fact, uh, you know, Harry Truman initially said, "Well, you know, I don't want to have a, an American Gestapo." Um, but there's a so that that's the that that's the the long term. I mean, I suppose we, we could talk about, uh, you know, some of the, the, the ways that naval intelligence sort of redeemed itself uh, in the shorter term, um, if you like, in terms of some of the strategic deceptions with, uh, with you know, laying the, the, the foundations for, um, for the success at Midway. David, that's a, that's a good segue because there is really a key figure in the six months, especially after Pearl Harbor, in naval intelligence. Well, if we're talking about Commander Joe Rochfort, uh, who uh, was uh, one of the, the, the key mm-hmm. figures, one of the key leaders in breaking the uh, JN-25B in, in March of 1942, uh, the, we need to sort of disaggregate the Japanese codes. There was the Japanese diplomatic code, which you may have heard uh, referred to as purple. Um, and there was also the naval code, which was a separate code, um, which was the JN or Japanese Naval uh, 25B. Um, both of these, when broken, were called magic. And uh, it was a little bit like ultra intelligence uh, in, the, in the European theater with the Brits. Uh, but Joe Rochford uh, is the head of Op 20G in Washington, and together with uh, Station Hypo uh, out in Hawaii, 
they really do recover very quickly uh, from the from the, uh, the 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 catastrophe at Pearl Harbor. And one of the the ways, you know, they sort of I think inspire me, you know, as a uh, as an intelligence professional, uh, at least a former intelligence professional, was that they didn't sit there and wait for the next bit of intelligence to come in. They, like all good analysts, they drove the collection uh, and they came up with ideas to, to get the collection, to, to get those gaps answered. And so, you know, they, they had the code broken, but, you know, nothing is a crystal ball and nothing is instantaneous. And so one problem remained. And the problem that remained uh, was that the, uh, the, the Japanese were going were gonna to move out their defensive perimeter again. Um, and they were going to do it um, to a place called AF. Um, and it was going to be 50 miles northwest of AF was where the Japanese were going to launch their attack from. Well, that's great. So they, they decoded uh, AF. But what, what does that mean? Uh, and how could naval intelligence find out? And so what they did was uh, Pearl Harbor uh, sent a message to Midway uh, from under the uh, uh, a secure undersea cable that the Japanese didn't have access to. And they said, hey, look, we want you to report a water shortage via plain text radio transmission. So tell us that you're short of water. So Midway does as told, and they, they send a plain, tra plain text transmission back to uh, Pearl saying, uh, uh, hey, we're, we're running, running short of water here. Well, the Japanese intercept this. And they then send a message, the Japanese Naval Intelligence Headquarters sends a message to their fleet, AF is short of water. Uh, and so now uh, this is confirmed that, the, the, uh, that AF is midway and it was going to be uh, the target of, uh, uh, of the next Japanese attack. And so you know, what do we have here? The Americans know the target of the attack, the probable time of the attack. The likely composition of the attack force, not not all through this one uh, little bit of deception, but uh, but through through uh, many means, uh, and they know the avenue of approach. Uh, so really, it's naval intelligence that that lays the groundwork for success. But of course, you know, as much as we love intelligence, uh, it, it by itself doesn't win wars. You know, the operational forces have to act on it and still come away with the victory. Um, I suppose it might be worth discussing the why the Japanese decided that they wanted to um, that they wanted to to extend their um, uh, extend the defensive perimeter. It's important to understand that the Americans had no real way to, to strike back uh, easily against the Japanese. Right. The, the Japanese reasoned um, again in, in, in the same as, as 1904, 1905, that I just need to come out and punch uh, a power in the face really hard. And that they're going to let us do what we want uh, because, um, uh, you know, because it's just not worth uh, it's not worth a long drawn out war to them. Uh, and in fact, it, it might be worth, uh, if you don't mind me, just reading a, a quick mm -hmm. uh, quote from uh, a historian, Dennis Showalter, uh, who, uh, you know, he, he's basically arguing that that uh, the attack on uh, the on Pearl Harbor from the Japanese grand strategic point of view uh, is going to to make the United States simply accept Japanese territorial gains as fait accompli because the Americans don't have a fleet. And by the time we 
we have a fleet, well, you know, it's going to be too late. And so uh, Dennis Showalter says the draft, the Japanese strategy was predicated on American rationality. Americans were businessmen, not samurai. Eventually, they would calculate costs and benefits and come to terms with the realities created by Japanese arms. Well, of course, you know, the so we've got the Americans with the miscalculation, the Brits with the miscalculation. And of course, the Japanese miscalculated uh, in the same way. But to strike back. The Americans launched the Doolittle Raid uh, on the 18th of, uh, of April, 1942. And I, I like to think of the, the uh, Doolittle Raid as a sort of morale operation, right? An operation that, that's more message than, than kinetic action. Obviously, it's a bombing, but I think the, uh, the, the messaging looms larger. And just to quickly uh, reiterate for your listeners, uh, the idea there, uh, sort of audacious, uh, was from Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle of the uh, the Army's Air Corps. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to bomb Tokyo, uh, and with it, by the way, uh, the emperor. Um, the, the relationship between the emperor and his people is worth understanding in this context. Um, with some carrier-based B-25 bombers, which, you know, in 1942 was not a thing. But uh, he convinced everyone that, that this was possible. And, you know, it's important, I think, because the, the Americans didn't have aircraft carriers to spare. And so reaching all the, you know, so far into the Pacific Ocean is a great danger, uh, you know, for the for the carrier involved. Um, and there's going to be no real physical effect, even if Doolittle is successful. They drop their bombs over Tokyo and then on fumes they get to China and are hopefully cross fingers picked up by the nationalist Chinese. Um, and so they, they do this with the message, uh, I think two messages. Number one, this is for Pearl Harbor. Uh, and number two, you're vulnerable and we're coming for you. And so while it, you know, the, the, the B-25s did have some um, minor effect in terms of property damage, uh, really what they did was they, they, they sent the message that the, the, the emperor was, uh, was under threat uh, from American bombs. And so that's why they needed to move all the way out to Midway. And again, if Midway, um, if that operation had been successful, well, then I think almost certainly it would have been a launching operation uh, for Hawaii again uh, a second time. Um, but as you know, the, uh, the the tide of the war was turned. Uh, Midway, the, the Battle of Midway actually represents the high water mark for the Japanese Navy uh, in the Pacific theater. Dr. David Gio, West Point professor and Navy commander. David, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Always good to talk with you, brother. Thank you, Claude. Look forward to next time. And for our listeners, hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did like it, please leave feedback on any platform you're listening to it. And have a great day. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.